Welcome to ASRM Today, a podcast that takes a deeper dive into the current topics in reproductive medicine. I'm Jeffrey Hayes, and today on the show, we are talking about testicular cancer for Testicular Cancer Awareness Month. Joining me today is Dr. Kathleen Wong. Dr. Wong is an associate professor of the Department of Urology, University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine, and serves as the director of male reproductive health. She is also the president of the Society of Reproductive Surgeons. Dr. Wong, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for the invitation. I'm very excited to be here today to speak to you guys. Fantastic. Well, I I, want to start by asking you, how did you choose reproductive medicine as a career? So in urology residency, I was fascinated with microsurgery and prosthetic surgery, and it sort of linked really closely to sort of my fascination with reproductive physiology as a medical student. You know, when there's those things that just click in your head and you just find such enthusiasm for, that was where it really fell into place. It really also was wonderful to meet some incredible mentors that I feel really fortunate really early on, kind of in early residency through fellowship that have sort of very much shaped my career. And so I'm really excited and I feel so fortunate to be in this field. And of course, we all feel very fortunate that that you have chosen this field uh, (laughs) and, and that you're here. So I have you on today to talk about the testicular cancer. It's Testicular Cancer Awareness Month. I'll start with with probably the the, the big question is 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 how common is is testicular cancer? So testicular cancer is probably the most common cancer among males who are young, between ages fifteen and up to about thirty five years. While it's the most common cancer, thankfully, it's still relatively rare when you compare it to other types of cancer. If you think about every year, an annual incidence rate, it's a little over five cases every 100,000 males, which doesn't seem like a lot, but it's enough that it keeps us really busy and wanting us to kind of stay on top of it. Is that still in the 18 to 35 range, that 100,000 Yes. Yes. And honestly, it accounts for almost 1% of all cancers in men. So it's not huge, but it's relevant worldwide. I think testicular cancer has more than doubled in the past 40 years. And whether that's just a better understanding of how to diagnose it early or, you know, reporting of it. And also things to consider, the incidence really does vary considerably in different geographical areas across the world, um, in the United States, Australia, and the United Kingdom, and really the lowest incidences are found in Asia and Africa. And there's also things to consider as well, that there are quite a bit of variability between different ethnic groups. So there's a much higher rate of testicular cancer among white men in comparison to black men, particularly in the American population. Is there, is there anything that, that's been genetically linked or is, are those studies, of course, I'm sure they're always ongoing, but is, is, there, is, there, sure. is there a genetic link that's known? So there, there are, there's a small link to genetics as well, because there can be familial things that have to be tracked. One of the most well-established risk factors for testicular cancer actually falls back to something as far as having an undescended testicle at birth. So, you know, what most people may not recognize is your testes are developed inside the belly, close to kind of where your kidneys are. And through development, they descend. And by the time that the baby is born, these male babies are supposed to have the testicles in the scrotum. But 
there is a is a relevant risk where these these testes don't descend all the way, whether one side or both. And having this undescended testis does put these men at increased risk for testicular cancer. And so that's why it's so incredibly important for pediatric um, field to follow that, parents to follow it, and and really track it to make sure that those testes do come down. So then how is, uh, let's say we have our hypothetical 18 to 35-year-old male, and there's a possibility or a chance that there could be testicular cancer. How is the screening done? Well, so unlike mammography for breast cancer and colonoscopies for colon cancer, there really is no standard or routine diagnostic screening test for early detection of testicular cancer. So we don't have like a clear test that everyone has been exposed to and that everyone between those ages that we just talked about are recommended to have. I mean, most often testicular cancer is really first found by men themselves, either by chance during self-exam, and sometimes a testicular lump or a bump is found by your pediatrician, your primary care physician during a routine annual physical exam. Now, I think I think everyone is always a little cautious to talk about routine screening for, for anything unless there's a clear benefit for reducing mortality or death risk for that patient. And the reality is no studies have been really done to find out if testicular self-exams, regular exams by your doctor, or any other screening tests like an ultrasound of the testis in men who don't really have symptoms actually decreases the risk of death from this disease. But having said that, like from my personal experience and my personal belief is sort of routine screening might not decrease the risk of death, but it may particularly decrease sort of um, the improvement of, of cure rate and the ability to cure patients from these diseases and maybe minimize the amount of treatment that they, they would require. So I feel like testicular cancer being diagnosed earlier is certainly hands down a no-brainer. We want to find it earlier. It makes it easier to treat. I also think that patients who are diagnosed with testicular cancer that's localized, meaning it hasn't spread to other parts of the body, uh, really does require lesser treatment and faster recovery. What are some of the treatments? So management of testicular cancer really starts with, number one, there is a lump on one of the testicles and we can feel it or we found it by ultrasound and we're really worried about it. Really, the first step is to remove the testicle. It has to come out. There isn't an area where there's like we biopsy it or do these other types of things. The entire testis comes out. Once the testis cancer comes out, then it's sort of dependent upon what type of cancer it is. Because even within testis cancer, there are different types. And the type of cancer really then determines whether that individual requires further radiation therapy and or further chemotherapy or even beyond more surgery. And the more you add on with the toxic therapies like radiation and chemo that can really impact testicular health, some of these additional surgeries can also influence function, like ejaculatory function. But I would have to say that the really positive thing is I think regardless of disease stage, probably more than 90% of all newly diagnosed cases of testicular cancer can be cured. Even with such all of these treatments, and, and that's a fantastic percentage, of course, is fertility preservation, what role does that play, if, if any, in the process? Absolutely. I think 
overall with cancer survivorship improving at such rates with improved cancer treatments and things like that, early diagnosis. Testicular cancer is no different, even though there's a really awesome cure rate. I think fertility preservation really, and I think it's well understood by everyone involved, should be offered to all patients with testicular cancer. I mean, we've just reviewed the the highest sort of incidence within what age group. And so these are young people who are of reproductive age. And again, we don't discount the folks who get diagnosed in their 40s or 50s or 70s that they don't want to have future fertility potentials. We should always offer it to patients and just just let them know that that's a choice. Now, there are well-developed national guidelines recommending sperm car preservation before kind of any gonadotoxic therapy, regardless of what kind of cancer you have. And certainly patients should be fully informed of the risks of infertility before any potential gonadotoxic treatment, and that sperm banking should be considered and made available when future fertility is a priority for that patient, regardless of age, regardless of how many children they already have and who are at risk for this sort of toxic treatment that they're going to need to to treat and cure their cancer. Now, testicular cancer, I think, is also special in of itself that the recommendation is that sperm banking should be done before the the testicular unit with the lump and suspected cancer is removed. So banking really should be offered and done before surgery. Now, there have been quite a few studies looking at sort of the difference of the quality of sperm that are produced in men who have just a diagnosis of testicular cancer. So there's evidence supporting the fact that men with testicular cancer, who at this point is a suspected testicular cancer, were pretty convinced we're moving forward with surgery to remove that testicle, have semen characteristics with lower sort of sperm motility, certainly lower motility that's preserved after thawing, after you've frozen their sperm. Um, in comparison to men, number one, without cancer, and then even to men with other types of malignancies. And so a kind of the take-home message is that men with testicular cancer tend to have reduced sperm quality. And so we'd like for them to be banking before their surgery. One, for, for logistical reasons, not a whole lot of patients want to consider having to provide an, an ejaculated sample after they've had surgery and recovery. They just want to be thinking about recovery and not having to worry about any other appointments or things like that. But I, I believe fully, fully that fertility preservation is incredibly important for patients and then should be offered to everybody. My guest today is Dr. Kathleen Wong. We are talking about testicular cancer. It is Testicular Cancer Awareness Month, but she is also the current president of the Society of Reproductive Surgeons. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, what's going on over at SRS this year? Sure. We're really excited this year for SRS. We've put a lot of energy into developing new educational programs. The top two educational programs that I'm really proud to kind of talk about today are is our surgical track scholars for fellows who are looking for more high volume surgical exposure within their REI fellowship. And that is off and running. Our pilot program is there. We have four programs that are active And in fact, we have uh, our monthly didactus coming up this Thursday, which I will be presenting on bladder and ureteral injury repair. But that's a really exciting program. I'm really proud of SRS for putting this together. And so far, it's gone off with a hit, and we're really excited about it. The second educational program that is new for SRS is this year, 
we've developed a traveling scholar program. And this is targeted at all trainees, whether at the level of a nursing student, a medical student, a resident, a fellow, basically anybody who has interest in reproductive surgery. Um, if you have an abstract and you have a project, we're encouraging trainees to submit an abstract to the ASRM national meeting for 2022. And if selected, SRS is going to foot the entire build for you to come to the ASRM national meeting. And we've put together this incredible program where you will be exposed to the SRS board and all these other incredible reproductive surgeons who want to take you under their wing and mentor you to kind of show you the ropes of what our careers look like. We have two slots available for 2022. One is focused on female reproductive surgery and another is focused on male reproductive surgery, which is uh, co-sponsored by the SMRU as well. So those are the two most exciting things we have coming down the pipe for SRS. What are the, uh, not expiration dates, but when, when would these be due? So these are going to follow the standard abstract deadline dates for the ASRM. And it, believe it or not, these traveling scholar abstracts are going to be submitted to a specific SRS traveling scholar subcategory. And so it'll get scored by an entirely separate population of reviewers, probably two or three times. So the deadline is the same. So I believe that's April 20th. You can correct me if I'm wrong. Um, but the deadline for the abstract submission is the same for the Traveling Scholar Program. Well, we will make sure to put all links to all of this information in our show notes so that people can access that and take a look for themselves. My guest today has been Dr. Kathleen Wong. Dr. Wong, thank you so much for coming on the show uh, today to, to talk all things testicular cancer and, and, and bring us up to date on SRS. Thank you so much. It's been fun talking with you and I'm excited to be here. Please subscribe and rate the show on Apple, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts from. I'm Jeffrey Hayes, and this is ASRM Today. This concludes this episode of ASRM Today. For show notes, author information, and discussions, go to asrmtoday.org. This material is copyrighted by the American Society for Reproductive Medicine and may not be reproduced or used without express consent from ASRM. ASRM Today Series podcasts are supported in part by the ASRM Corporate Member Council. The information and opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of ASRM and its affiliates. These are provided as a source of general information and are not a substitute for consultation with a physician.